become a patron of Entertainment Landfill. Go to patreon.com landfill for details. Entertainment Landfill is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you. On this week's show Jason and Steven will fill you guys in on what they've been up to lately. Twin Peaks, a movie that scared the shit out of them and a whole lot of a game called Destiny 2. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. To another exciting episode of ETL News. I'm your host, the Jstrom, but I don't do this show alone. It's just not me in my grandma's basement. I also do it with Stephen the Pop Culture Zealot. My, <laughs> why my grandma's basement? Hello, Hello. Stephen. Hello, Jason. We don't even have basements here in Texas, do no. we? There's not? very few houses here with basements. Yeah, very few. But Stephen, it's so great to have you here because this is September 15th. We've been officially been uh, we've officially been podcasting for twelve years. We started in two thousand five. The first episode went up like I think it was September fifth or something. So I'm twelve years older than I was. Holy cow! <laughs> yes, very much so. Oh, the, the show is a lot the different. Show's making me old. Yeah, I know. I feel very old. The show's a lot different than it was when we started. But we're still podcasting. Hopefully you're still listening. I don't know. We're still having a good time. Stephen and I will get together and just talk about things we've been doing. And uh, hopefully you guys are digging it, man. It's pretty awesome. Uh, most recently, let's catch up on things we've been doing. Stephen, uh, let's not forget to mention Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. We watched all 18, 18 episodes. Last Sunday felt so sad. Because there was no new Twin Peaks to watch, because they aired two in a row two weeks ago. And uh, episode 17, it was, we were following the narrative, you know, and it led us to this place where we saw some things pay off that were building up. Right. 
And then episode 18 kind of was like, what, uh, huh? what, what, what's going on? <laughs> you know, uh, I think I described it as uh, season three kind of negated seasons one and two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still not quite sure what happened. I thought like episode 17 was very entertaining. I love Freddie punching the Bob ball. <laughs> yeah. Um, the weird gloved hand. And yeah. Can't take off this rubber glove. Oh my God. That's it was something. so bizarre. But I was left speechless at the end of that episode. Yeah. And uh, I turned to Heather and I go, you know what? I I knew it was going to end like this. Come on. It had to end where we were just like, huh? Did we really think it was going to end where it's like everything's wrapped up, tidy bow and done? Because David Lynch isn't interested in doing that, is he ever? He doesn't tell the story in a A to Z fashion. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, a complete a straight narrative, if you will. I like your to narrative think, will happen at the beginning and the end, but in the middle, it's a wild ride. Do you think he knows what's going on, or do you think that he's just? having fun throwing new things out there. I think in his mind, he thinks he knows what's going on. How's that? Right. I think, I think. Does he know what's going on? I don't know. Cause it gets kind of metaphysical and all that stuff in there. For instance, the Audrey storyline, I almost thought we were going to get more, but then when I thought back to it, that, moment where she goes <gasps> and she's like looking in a mirror in a different place that was the end of her story that we were going to see we didn't realize is it at the time but this is his clue he's giving you and that's all you're going to see i think part of like the finale i was like okay i'm ready to see more audrey stuff and when we didn't get any of that i was like when it was all over you know and i was thinking about it, I go we didn't get any more audrey you know what's going on with her so with the way in my opinion, the way 17 ends, you know, because Laura Palmer is not Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler, sorry. Uh, There's no way to spoil the show. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if you if you're if if you were going to watch it, you watched it. Yeah. Um, Laura Palmer is not Laura Palmer, but she's Laura Palmer. That I don't know how to say it any other way. Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Cooper's been looking for her for years, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I didn't know it was going to go there. Did you think he was going to try to go back and save her? And also, the fact that it feels like he goes back in time. Right. Intercepts her before she goes off to where she's going to be murdered. Right. But he's leading her through the woods, and he turns and looks, and all of a sudden she's gone, and he hears her scream. So she's been taken somewhere else, right? That's the fork in the road, if you will, metaphorically. And they show like the very first episode where the guy goes out to go fishing. What's that character's name? She's dead. Uh, Yeah. Wrapped in plastic. I can't remember. You see Laura just like, she erases. Like that's not going to happen now. Right. But what does that mean? Does that mean Coop ever comes to Twin Peaks to investigate He somehow remembers it. I know, but does anyone else? No. You know, I listened to a really cool podcast uh, by um, 
uh, don't forget his name, Jeff Jensen with Enter, uh, Entertainment Weekly. And he had on Damon Lindelof, you know, who did Lost and The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. And they talked all about the finale. And he kind of threw about something there that he said, did you know at the when Cooper and uh, Carrie Page or it's really, she looks like Laura, but her, she says her name is Carrie. They go to the Palmer house to mm-hmm. take her home. But a woman answers, and she's like, uh, no one here lives by that name. Uh, the lady who answers the door is the woman who owns that house in real life. And they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But uh, one of them on the podcast goes, wait, wait, wait a second. You're telling me she goes, they go to the Palmer house, and the lady who answers the door is the lady who lives in the house in the real world? Yes. When they drive by the R&R diner, mm-hmm. is that the way the diner looks in real life? Right. Did Cooper somehow come into the real world where Twin Peaks doesn't exist or something? A variation of Twin Peaks exists. Right. Because he was in that phantom zone, the, mm-hmm. the squiggly line room. <laughs> squiggly line room yeah. with the red curtain yeah the uh the black lodge yes uh yeah <laughs> i loved all of that i so, loved we got the the dougie where they made a new uh tulpa and dougie's like i'm home and they're like dougie or whatever so we got a happy ending with that which was great um but yeah, I think I'll be thinking about this for a long time. Every once in a while, I start thinking about it again. It's just like, so I'm wondering if the Black Lodge has something to do with the way Cooper can remember it. Is there more story? There can be. I mean, because because uh, Cooper, uh, he seems so sure of himself. He's what he right. set out to do. So in my mind, he would be investigating why nobody can remember. But yet he's standing there in the middle of the street and he's just like, he, for the first time ever, he's like confused and he's like, what year is this? And then she, Laura hears just screams. She hears, do you well, remember? She hears Laura, like in the oh, distance. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, she yeah, goes, yeah. it screams and the lights in the house turn off, all turn off at the same time, cut to black. That's it. And I was like, that's the end. Holy shit. <laughs> But I got to say this, those 18 episodes, I thought, were puzzling, completely entertaining, most of all, a lot of fun, like laughs, lots of really good, funny moments. Like, I even love, there's a part where, uh, after the Bob part, they're all in the sheriff's office, that strange character, Candy, she goes... It's a good thing we brought all these extra sandwiches. <laughs> She's got this big old thing of sandwiches. How great are those? All those side characters yes. all in the same room. I love that. And who gets to shoot Bob also? <laughs> I just loved it. It was so exciting and entertaining. And I'm going to say very fulfilling and just confusing at the end. But... At the same time, I wasn't disappointed by it. It was just more, more to interpret or think about. And I think that's cool. He gave us that. Maybe, I think in, we'll do a story later on the future of Twin Peaks, but 
he could do anything he wants. He could go wherever he wants with I, it. I he? think, in my opinion, if he did it as if Twin Peaks was an endless loop, you know, mm-hmm. one one way it's it's gonna happen over and over. Well, there's some. You know. There's other characters they introduce, like the weird Balthazar Getty character. Like he had this magic that he did. And did you notice when he shows up to uh, um, oh, Maid Shinobic's character? Why am I forgetting her name? Uh, Shelly. When she sees him, she's sitting there talking to Bobby and her daughter. And she sees him, and she forgets all about them. She runs up and she hugs and she's kissing him and stuff. I saw some theories like he's got some kind of spell on her, some kind of hold on her magical spell where she's obsessed with them or whatever. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. But no. How'd you like that one Charlene Yee part where she's crawling on the floor of the club and she just screams and there's nothing to it? I mean, we never we don't know what that was about. It's just an interesting moment. But how about the Sarah Palmer character when she takes off her face and she tells that guy, you really want to F with this or something. Yeah. And the guy is being vile to her. Remember when he walks yeah. him, she says these horrible things to her. And uh, it's just bizarre. What is living inside of her? If she's akin to the... To the Remember to they the, mentioned the Judy? To the Black Lodge. It's a version. Well, remember there, there's this yeah black this very dark spirit of evil called Judy. Yes. Uh, what is that about? <laughs> I I thought that uh, I loved uh, David Lynch's character Gordon in this too. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that we won't get any more uh, Miguel Ferrer's character. He's fantastic. Or David uh, or Harry Dean. Yeah, Harry Dean Stanton just passed away. Very got- sad. How many people of this have gone now? You know, a lot. That he, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. He's mm-hmm. died years ago. It's uh, it was a, it's a great show. I, I, I really. Uh, and now they're happy. I got to experience it. What, December fifth, the Blu-rays coming out. It's. It felt like a bonus. Did you ever think we'd get any more Twin Peaks ever no. in your life? The fact that it came back and it was this bizarre 18 episodes, just full of funny stuff, puzzling moments, hilarity, some scary moments, genuinely creepy stuff. Yes. That episode eight with the nuclear bomb going off and the bug crawling in the girl's mouth and all that bug frog or whatever. (laughs) So just cool. Just something we never get to see on television. Just completely original television, you know? And, uh, and I wonder how well it did. Mm-hmm, me too. I'm curious about it. And I mean, I know several of the people who listen to our show are fans of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've saw them commenting on it on places. So it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I was posting this one comic book artist was doing a uh, his a page right. of the each episode. And he hasn't done episode 18 yet. I'm I'm can't wait to see that. Um, yeah, Ken, he really liked the episode, but, uh, Twin Peaks, a lot of fun. Loved it. Uh, do you want to talk about it? Yes. I want to say this. I took my daughter, Emma, to see it, a rated (laughs) R horror movie because 
She begged me to. She was like, I want to see this so bad. I want to see it. And I go, Emma, I don't know if you can handle it. She goes, I watched The Shining the other day, and I was fine. And I go, okay, I I understand that. But she tried to watch The um, the Baba Duke by herself, and she's like, I couldn't do it. I had to turn it up. I was like, well, you won't be alone. You'll be with me and Steven. It, you know, you're not sitting in a room by yourself. So uh, we go to see it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I kept thinking about the Dark Tower as we were watching it. The first five minutes of it, I knew it was like a hundred times better than the Dark Tower. Even the, just the opening titles of it floating there in the sewer, like the the letter I and T floating in the air. Uh, I was just like, there's more style. There's more atmosphere tone, uh, artistic license, whatever, in that one shot than all of the Dark Tower. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking with the Dark Tower. Uh, I know it's eight books, and they're trying to... They can't tell the whole story, and and so why try to force it all into a movie? Yeah, it was a mistake. Like, even it, they knew, okay, we can't do the whole story in one movie. Let's do... Part one. Part of the story uh, when they're the main characters are kids Mm -hmm. and then let's do a part two with main characters or adults characters or adults. Uh, if the movie does well enough, well, the movie did fantastic. And the movie was, is again, if it, if it, if it failed, it was still a complete movie. Yeah. If they never made part two, we got an ending to this. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't have been as satisfying as, uh, no, I mean, they leave it open-ended enough where you know there could be more, but they also ended it where if there won't be any more, we have an ending kind of a thing. Yeah. And luckily... I'm uh, glad they didn't f- kind of fall into the shoes of the miniseries. Uh-huh. Um, they, every they choice kinda, they made, because in the miniseries... They, they stayed a little too close to the book. Yes, and they avoided anything that could reminded you of the mini could have reminded you of the miniseries in this movie. They didn't do, they did something different, right? They didn't have a slingshot in there. They didn't have, uh, well, it wasn't a, the first part wasn't a flashback from them being adults to children. Yeah, yeah. They avoided anything that would go, Oh, this reminds me of the miniseries. They did, they did a different. And I think that was genius. Cause did you, I never once thought about that miniseries while I was watching the movie. No, I, I was, Again, uh, afterwards, you can think about it and say, okay, I see the differences. Like, uh, you know, for instance, the kids don't see Frankenstein or the Gill Man or the Werewolf because those are universal properties, <laughs> you know, and they did their own thing that more is more personal to the kids' fears. Right. And I thought that worked, too. Did anything in this adaptation uh, bother you? Like, oh, I wish they wouldn't have changed that. Or did it? do you even think about that while you were watching it? Um, I'm trying to think. Was I, I don't think I was dissatisfied with anything. I will say this. The first encounter with Pennywise, you know, little Georgie is talking to him. Mm-hmm. I was just transfixed on uh, Pennywise's face. Like he does suck you in right away. It's so you can't take your eyes off of him. And you know, he's like, don't you want your boat? 
why don't you reach in and grab it? I pictured in my head that they we would see Georgie get pulled into the sewer. That's all we would see. We, like he would vanish. No, that's no. not. Stop what you got. We see a little kid's friggin' arm ripped off with blood spurting out of it and him trying to crawl away and then get dragged in the sewer. And I was like, I was hoping, I thought two things, and they probably did it and they cut it because it looked too comedical, mm -hmm. too comical, mm -hmm. was he was too far out in the street, but you see this giant long clown arm come out, you know, and like extend mm -hmm. 12 feet and grab him. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably happened. Because it looked like he was kind of too far away. Well, they showed his arm extend out and grab him. But too far, is what I'm saying. It would have been comical if he had reached out there halfway across. If these, oh, you mean if he made it, it across the street or something? Yeah, if he'd have seen an extended arm. They you know, did show it extended enough where a it was... A little bit, but mm -hmm. it wasn't crazy. It was enough to be creepy, I yes. thought. And, but, but if they'd have done it like a 12 or 15 foot arm... That, that was the moment, hilarious. though, it when they show the kid, a little kid, a little boy's arm ripped off. I was like, "Holy shit! Little... This is the kind of movie that we're going to watch." Am I right? But I will say this: we don't get any more uh, gory than that moment at the beginning of the movie. I don't think there's some scary, there's some jumps, there's some scares, but nothing as visual as. Teeth sinking into an arm and pulling an arm off. There's well, nothing like that in the rest of the movie. Other than, um, oh, the nerd, not the nerdy kid, the other one, the, he started getting his face bit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was... That was other, pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty go On the verge of gory. The kids were great. I wanted more of the kids. I wanted even more of... Uh, their personalities because you know the they don't they're not the losers club right away they're a group of friends but also ben's an outsider uh uh what's her liz no beverly beverly bev she's kind of on the outside too and they come together and mike he's on the outside mm -hmm. too and they all come together but um basically it shows how it uh Here's one thing that I wasn't sure. There's parts where they encounter Pennywise or in some form or other. And is he just scaring them and going to attack them later? Or does he just miss the opportunity to get them then? I don't know if he's appearing to them as a vision or if he's really there and he could actually kill them right then. I think it's a vision. For instance, uh, Ben is in the library and he's reading creepy stuff in a book and it keeps getting worse as he flips pages which was really effective i believe there was something like that in the and book they, but it was and then the balloon floating yeah and in the, in the library and he it was about it. uh this man's head was found in a tree or something and then he sees a headless body and that's chasing him if he would have stood still and that body got him would it have been it and eaten him right then or if it, was it just a vision to scare him that's what i wasn't sure about um i don't know i don't have an answer i would say probably a vision to scare him right there because there's a part too many adults around because there's parts where it comes to them in broad daylight you think you're not safe in the dark or something but he comes to them in broad daylight like for instance mike is standing outside of a building in an alleyway 
and he looks in and sees uh, this crazy vision and uh, it's really scary. But the kid who takes the pills, what's his name? Um, I forget. Is it Stu? Stu. Uh, he sees uh, Pennywise in broad daylight also, which, you know, the balloons raising. All the Pennywise stuff, they did a very, really good job Effective, of it. Yeah. And his eyes were kind of crooked. I don't know if you noticed, he looked kind of to the left and to the right. His eyes were very unnerving. Because there's just something off about him, the way his eyes look. Uh, my favorite sequence in the whole movie was uh, the projector scene that yeah. you see in the trailer. But they didn't give everything away. They see that there's a moment where they're like, what's going on? Turn it off, turn it off, or whatever. You don't know what's going to happen. But that was the... Uh, th- that the, was the jump scare. Well, I was like... I, you know, I was telling you that I was like, come on, movie, scare the shit out of me. I'm ready for you. And I wasn't jumping or anything. I, none of, some of the jumps are loud. I They use music to like, like to scare the shit out of you. That wasn't working. But that one projector scare got me where I was like, Bah! And Emma and I both jumped, and she just started laughing. And I go, that was a good one, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> it was the kind of scare that didn't terrify me it like i was like that was That's good a joyful scare it was a joyful scare <laughs> like emma and i shared being jolted in our seats which was great uh my favorite sequence uh that was my favorite scare the projector part my favorite sequence was the whole haunted house scene where they go to that the part where the kid goes in the room with all the clown uh, statues and dolls and all that, I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and even Emma, I saw her, she looked down and she covered her ears and I go, I don't blame her at all because this shit's scary, you know. <laughs> uh, the car- You know, when the little kids, they keep wandering off by themselves, I'm like, stop wandering off by yourself well that was there's my one caveat towards the film it's like they talked about having to stay together but every time something happens yeah somebody wandered off by themselves you know it's just like hey let's stay your group jason huh who's that guys you stay here hey, i'm gonna jason walk go it's like well he's gonna be dead in five minutes <laughs> but that whole encounter in the house and then when they all see uh you know when pennywise and uh, bev has her great heroic moment kind of thing it was a lot of fun and i i like the climax of the film and stuff they hint at things that are in the book uh that they don't say it out loud here's one thing i wanted to ask you about i'm glad they didn't do you know richie was the comedic one in there Mm -hmm. and everything was beep beep from the first tv show Mm -hmm. they did it once yeah they didn't overdo that yeah they didn't and uh you could tell he was the annoying one, but he should annoy his friends, not the audience kind of thing. Right. Uh, all of the parents, whenever they, they show this weird TV show that they're watching where this woman is talking to a group of kids, and I'm wondering, is that in the book? Or is it something they invented for the I movie? I don't remember it being in the book. Because whenever you see a parent or an adult watching TV, they're watching this weird show. And if you listen to what she's saying, she goes, kids should play in the sewers. It's lots of fun and it's great exercise. Uh, do you, have you noticed that? So it's like they're watching the Pennywise show that's broadcasting well, to them. Yeah. 
it does it does some to an extent i think affect adults because that's yes. where they're saying they're like all under a spell or something right but i none of the, but kids, the kids are the ones who are not blinded by the right none of the kids in the town even take a moment to look at the tv do you notice that right. but all so, the parents they so show I'm them. wondering if it's kind of like a subliminal thing the kids see them watching i love lucy yeah and they're watching this and they're they're subconsciously seeing the Pennywise show, right? Like for instance, like uh, uh, Bev's dad, he's watching it. Uh, that what's the bully's name? Uh, his dad, the sheriff or whatever, he's yeah. watching it. And By the way, that bully, the bully stuff was like holy was shit. A, yeah, he was a he was a good check. <laughs> There's a part where you think some harm is going to happen to a cat, and I was Emma was like, "Oh no!" And luckily, that doesn't happen. But because I don't care what kind of movie you see, you can see ki- little kids killed, but don't you kill an animal because then <laughs> you hurt an animal. you lose the audience, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm excited to uh, see part two in a couple of years or whatever. But do you? I saw on uh, Facebook a lot of people were like, "Who would you cast as the?" Just leave it alone. Don't. <laughs> people were naming like all these well, different the only stars. One that I thought would be fine. That actually, and it, everybody's talking about how much she looks like Amy Adams. Mm-hmm. I've re- I've heard Jessica Chastain or Amy Adams, two redheaded actresses. <laughs> yeah. So there are people who are casting agents. It's their jobs. Let's leave it to them. Right. Cause I don't even mind if it's people that I've never heard of and they cast right. new actors now, or if whatever. They, if Amy, Amy Adams, fine. She, I'll, I'll buy that. But mm-hmm. anybody else, I'd like, I don't know. You know, they were saying, Oh, Jack Black for Ben. I'm like, yeah, that's the first person I thought I was of. like, well, when he was an adult, if you read the books, he actually got fit. He wasn't a, you know, a tubby guy. Let me ask you this, because we, as we're watching the film, we, we love the characters, the little kids so much switching to them as older, uh, older people. I mean, older characters where they're supposed to be those young characters, but you know, it's like, will the shift be like, they're totally different people. It's not working for me. It's going to be hard for them to do that. Don't you think? Um, well, like I said, if, if they pick name people, it might be difficult. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to go with maybe one or two names and everybody else non, you know, mm-hmm. that are going to be fairly new or been around, but you, they're just kind of side characters. Me, uh, Say like, like Don Cheadle for Mike. Yeah. I've heard Don Cheadle, Chad, uh, Boswick, the guy who's playing the Black Panther, Chris Rock, probably too old. You need somebody who's going to be in their 30s, right? Is that what it is? Uh, 27 years later. 27, they can't be, so... They can't be too old. Don Cheadle be too old, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think... Well, I was just saying that as an example of somebody yeah, as a yeah. known name. Yeah. As, but also, like, Chris Pratt as uh, the main character. Like... Bill. I just, I don't see Chris Pratt being afraid of Pennywise. You just go punch him in the nose or something, you know? There has to be genuine... He kind of has to be a little more bookish, I would think. Yeah, how about the guy, the main character... Because I think Bill's supposed to be like an author in the, you know... Yeah, Bill, the Thomas Middleditch from Silicon Valley. Somebody who seems kind of frail, but he's smart or whatever. 
You know what I mean? You can't have a pumped up action star like I'm gonna go take down Pennywise. So who's the the guy? The other guy on Silicon Valley, the comedic guy that has the, the initials. Uh, oh yeah, uh, T.J. Miller. T.J. So he could be Richie. Yeah, he could be Richie. He could do something like that. It'll be interesting. I I, I think it's. Uh, I'm excited to see where they go. I. You know, there's so many crappy horror movies now, like the Annabelle movies or whatever, where they just keep cranking out the, the we saw Jigsaw or whatever. Yeah. I have no interest in any of these movies just to scare you to scare you or whatever. But I... The, it has a story. The allure of this being a Stephen King property, but it looked like they were doing it right, that's what drew me to the movie. And Emma would never forgive me if I didn't take her. <laughs> but afterwards, after the movie, you know, when we were driving home, you know, we were both kind of wired. We were like talking about different parts we liked and stuff. It was like we were really pumped up about it. And, you know, Heather, who doesn't like horror movies at all, she goes, what I've been able to hand it, I was like, oh, no, no, no. You would have been out of there the first encounter of Pennywise. <laughs> you would have been like, When Georgie ah. lost his arm, she was gone. Before Heather would have jumped, there's a part at the beginning where Georgie goes to the basement to get some wax. She would have been gone at that part because there was a part where uh, his brother Bill goes, squawks on the mic, uh, the walkie-talkie. Yeah. She would have been like, whoa, okay, I'm gone. <laughs> and, then, and then the mom playing that very oh, dour the, the song. music, it's so just, atmospheric. It's rainy yeah. outside. I loved it. It just made me want to know more about the town and Pennywise, but I guess that's what books are for, right? And You can read it. <laughs> I could read it. <laughs> Let me ask you this. You know, because I know it goes into weird places, like how they f learn more about Pennywise. Do you think that's going to be hard to do in a movie without seeming ridiculous? Because some of Stephen King's ideas and stuff were a little out there. Um, they could just kind of pick and choose what works and what doesn't, couldn't right. they? Because that's mean, what they, they did with part one. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to basically end the same way as the first one. Mm -hmm. Well, I've read, I don't know the ending uh, of the book. Oh. I know the ending of the miniseries, but... I've read a lot of people said it's a crappy ending. I don't know if you agree with that, but couldn't they f make it better for the movie? Sure. What about you? Disappointed by the ending in the book, or do you remember? It's been so long. A lot of people say Stephen King, he uh, weaves a great story, but he sometimes, sucks at endings. Sometimes the endings fizzle. Mm-hmm. Now, probably the one of the best endings in any of his books, in my opinion, is Pet Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And that's so far. Um, there's been other good ones, and then some have fizzled for me. Does the ending of Pet Cemetery end the same way as the movie? Yes. Okay, that is a good ending. Uh, ex ex in, in, when in the the movie kind of should be it, it should have been done a little differently. Uh, it was it's it's what happened in the. It's what happened, but you don't visually need to see her walking in. Right. He was sitting at the table reading, eating cereal, whatever he was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and he's as he's sitting there at the table, the hand touches his shoulder and it says in a gravelly voice, says is his name. And that's the end. It's just like, oh, oh yeah, my it's kind God. of like chills kind of thing. Yeah. That, yeah. 
freaked me out. Yeah, that is good. And so that was probably one of the best endings. Well, I know some of his movies, like I can't, in The Shining, I've read the book about three quarters of the way. I haven't finished it. But I, I've, of course, I've seen the movie by Stanley Kubrick. Which it didn't end like that. Yeah, it didn't end the same. But I did Danny die in the first book? He doesn't, does he? Because he wrote a sequel called... Uh, 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 Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep. So obviously he didn't die. No. So never mind. <laughs> oh, uh, I remember and- Scatman Crothers dies in the movie, that character, but he lives in the book. Because you need him. And by the way, Shining is ruined for me. That term is ruined for me from now on. <laughs> He's got the shine. He got the shine. Yeah, uh, in, the, in the book, if you want to know, d- all the he he he's supposed to do something with the boilers, mm-hmm. and he doesn't do it, and the whole hotel explodes. Oh, okay. I did not know that. I guess they couldn't do that in the movie because. Uh, I guess you could have built a model and yeah. blown that up or something, but it would look like shit. The, the, and, and they didn't. It didn't have a hedge maze. It was so uh, the the hotel itself in the book is this place of evil. So you didn't need it to not exist anymore. But instead, the way the movie The Shining ends, it just shows you that actually Jack Nicholson has been here the whole time, or he. Existed a spirit of him or whatever will forever be with the hotel, yeah. or he was there in the past, or whatever. Yeah, you interpret it yourself, right? Or whatever. And it is kind of a creepy. You see, it zooms in on that old photograph, and there he is with all those people, and they're like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, in the in the books, it's topiaries, like in the miniseries, The mm-hmm. Shining. Oh, don't even talk about the TV miniseries. <laughs> but it, it, that one's kind of closer to what happened. Yeah. Yeah. He tried to do something. I wouldn't If they could do a good movie adaptation of The Stand or uh, The Shining again. No, they should just leave The Shining alone. Um. I mean, it had it had to be more like a misery style than mm-hmm. uh, than a horror, a genuine horror. Would movie. you like a high budget miniseries like on HBO? That might be more fun. Not just say goodbye to ABC. No more ABC TV miniseries yeah. with the commercials and shit. We want like or Netflix. even Netflix where there's no commercials. You can binge watch all. You know, 13 episodes, that's a whole book right there. Yeah. You know, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? Yeah. So you'd, or you, you, yeah. But I mean, sometimes, how many times have you read a book where you're like, this doesn't need to be a movie? Or sometimes you read one and you're like, this would make a great movie. Sometimes you read a book that's a good book, doesn't need to be it's a like, movie. I just finished App Pupil today. Mm-hmm. I didn't really see that as needing a movie, but they made one of them. Does it make you, oh, I got to see the movie now? Or you're like, hmm. Mm. Yeah, just yeah. the whole premise of that. I'm like, eh, I don't want to read that. <laughs> you know, I'm not interested. But um, so now the body is the next short story, which was Stand by Me. Mm-hmm, great. So, I think I've read that. Yeah. So we've got two good more stuff. We've got two more short stories in to finish different seasons. That's right in Stephen King's wheelhouse. A lot of people think the horror, but I'm thinking 
children in the 50s is his wheelhouse. Or when he describes things in the 50s or growing up, it's so detailed and so vivid. You just see it all in your head. That's like my favorite stuff he does. Like Hearts in Atlantis, you know, the that they made into a movie with Anthony Hopkins. I haven't seen it. That story is so good. I haven't seen it because I haven't read it. It's great. It's, it's, it's very strong writing from Stephen King. Love it. I need to get back in my rate reading mm-hmm. mode. Yeah. Me too, big time. All right, Stephen, let's move on to... Uh, I just wanted to say that in a moment of weakness last weekend, I purchased Destiny 2 for the PlayStation 4. I played Destiny on Xbox One, mm-hmm. and uh, I was totally addicted to it. I had to just quit cold turkey. Um, it always annoyed me that there were there was stuff in the game that I couldn't play because it was a Sony exclusive. So I was like, if I play Destiny 2, it's going to be for Sony because I want those exclusives because it always annoyed me. The, the complaints I had about the first Destiny is there wasn't enough to do. You just did the same shit over and over and over again. The storyline was so short. The gameplay in Destiny, that was fine. The control, the guns, the aliens, or whatever. You let me go around and I got to just head blast everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it's <laughs> fun. And I'm playing Destiny 2 now. I'm not even done with the storyline. I've been playing it uh, Saturday. I got to play it for two hours, and then I had to wait till Monday. Played it for three hours, three hours here and there. And I'm not even done with the whole storyline, and I'm really uh, getting into it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I see they've made so many improvements over the first Destiny, where Destiny felt like they had things that were great, but they also, it felt like it was an unfinished game and there wasn't enough material, but yet it was so fun to play. You just kept playing it. The whole idea of the game is to keep you, you fight these battles and stuff to unlock loot. You get more, you get better gear. You're, you're building your character up to the super powerful being. And then you get to play end game content like giant raids with puzzles and huge bosses. And it's a lot of fun to play in a community. The only problem is I play alone. You know, I don't play with friends or stuff. I need to find friends who will play with me, you know, to do the end game. Yeah. Cause I mean, in order to do a raid, yeah, you need six people to play certain, some things. Another thing you need, uh, it's forum. I don't do PVP. I might play it a little bit, but you really need like three other friends to play with where you're all talking like, okay, run around here and stuff. So if it's all just four anonymous people, you're not playing as a team and you're all just getting killed or whatever. But so far, I'm having a lot of fun. It's been exciting, and I can feel that tingle, like that itch of like, I gotta get back to it. I gotta keep playing. I gotta play it some more. I gotta play. But destiny. I was doing a mission. (laughs) I was doing a mission that was totally different than anything else, where I was driving a tank, and the tank locks on to enemies and fires all these missiles and. I was just like, this is so awesome. I'm loving this. I'm doing something different that I haven't played in the rest of the game. Like, I'm on foot fighting, but this is the first time I'm in a tank, and it's so much fun, just the adventure aspect. And you go on adventures that you queue up, and there's storylines. I love it. 
uh, so far I'm having a great time. So that's my Destiny 2 talk. And uh, I recommend playing it, especially on PlayStation 4. And uh, you guys need to friend me so we can do stuff together. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to. That's you, Adam Sexton. Yeah, Adam Sexton meeting. Okay, Stephen, <laughs> big news while we were gone. Uh, and I got to get into this after I take a drink of my beverage. Colin Trevorrow is no longer directing episode 9 of Star Wars the heck you say some people predicted that or some people hope that after that movie called the book of henry came out and didn't get good reviews i was like oh give the guy a break you know it doesn't mean he's gonna do a bad film or whatever but apparently based on screenplay you know from what we hear disagreements with the screenplay uh he's now left the project so it's like, who's going to do it now? Maybe Ryan Johnson, he could do episode nine. He's just finishing episode eight. And he basically said, no, I'm going to, I can't wait to watch it as an audience goer. I, you know, doing these films takes up years of your life. You know, that's all you've been working on. He's doing post-production on episode eight. It comes out months from now on in December. He does not want to dive back into it. I mean, I'm sure like he would love to do another Star Wars, but it's a lot of work. Like even George Lucas, he did the prequels, but he did them years apart. He didn't do them year after year after year, or even you know, uh, or whatever. Uh, it's something. It's a huge undertaking. You know, J.J. Uh, Abrams, he did The Force Awakens. Now he's going to do episode nine and it makes sense. He's had a lot of time off in between there, huh? Mm-hmm. And so JJ Abrams to write and direct star Wars episode nine, the acclaimed filmmaker will return to helm the final film in the sequel trilogy. JJ Abrams, who launched a new era of star Wars with the force awakens in 2015 is returning to complete the sequel trilogy as writer and director of star Wars episode nine. Abrams will co-write the film with Chris Terrio. Star Wars Episode Nine will be produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Michelle Somebody, Abrams, Bad Robot, and Lucasfilm. I couldn't say her name. With The Force Awakens, J.J. delivered everything you could have possibly hoped for, and I am so excited that he's coming back to close out the trilogy, said Kathleen Kennedy. I think that's cool. It's an obvious choice. I have no problem with this. Uh, I think it's great because inch characters he introduced, you know, he gets to see him off and it might be more operatic, poetic, etc. because he, uh, created Maybe the he character. had a vision for it back then. What would happen yeah. to him? Yeah. Instead of calling Trevorrow hired gun or whatever. And I don't know why he didn't work out or whatever. I've read some people like, well, you know, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, she's not going to let, these directors be creative or whatever, do what they want. First of all, I got to say this, uh, neither would George Lucas. Do you think Irvin Kirshner or Richard Marquand, who did empire and, uh, um, return of the Jedi. Sure. They could be creative and, you know, stage scenes or whatever like that. They couldn't go too crazy because they're not going to rewrite anything. Well, yeah, it's part of a trilogy. You can't go way crazy. Obviously, Return of the Jedi, uh, you know, it had lots of Ewoks and stuff. George Lucas, he was, had a toy empire to sell, you know, but <laughs> uh, I think it's silly to think that. Children. I think Kathleen Kennedy, I think Star Wars is in good hands with Kathleen Kennedy. I've defended her before. 
if Colin Trevorrow isn't working out, she has the power to get rid of him, and she did. The same with the two guys, uh, you know, Phil Lord and uh, Chris Miller or whatever. She can get rid of them if they're not working out, if they're being assholes or whatever. I don't know the, the reason exactly. I know they weren't getting along. If they wanted to go too far off script. Of yeah. What, the, I'm sure there was a Force Awakens, the second one, and third one kind of generally mapped out. Yeah. I think it's silly. I mean, I don't know what Colin Trevorrow... I don't... I'm not... wasn't excited to what story he was going to weave... Because I don't know if he's a strong storyteller. I know, you know, he's directed two films that I've seen. uh, Safety Not Guaranteed and Jurassic World. I know a lot of people did not like Jurassic World. Uh, I didn't have a problem with it. Because I don't have this affection for the Jurassic movies. They're dinosaur movies or whatever that you go see. They're, They're action stupid, spectacles. Dumb, fun popcorn movies. But I think a lot of people who feel strongly about them were the right age when Jurassic Park came out. Like you and I, like I was in my 20s. Right. Uh, you were Obviously in your 20s. In my 20s. <laughs> um, I was in we, my teens. No yeah, way, we Mr. didn't see it when we were like 13 and it was like special to us. It was like, it was a, Jurassic Park is a fun movie. I think I don't like The Lost World. Jurassic Park 3. It's kind of like it has moments that are entertaining, but it's not great or whatever. Um, Jurassic World is fine or whatever. You know, the, you it there was a lot of uh, the nostalgia or whatever. But all I'm saying is, Colin Trevorrow, he, I didn't see anything that showed me he would ruin a Star Wars movie. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I really think all this had to do with genuinely maybe his story ideas to close out, which probably needs to be the strongest, the third one. Yeah. I mean, everyone, you know, the second one is usually the strongest. Like if you look at uh, Empire Strikes Back, not Attack of the Clones, which is the worst one, I think. Uh, <laughs> Attack of the Clones is worse than the Phantom Menace. I've said that before, and I stick to that. It, it's worse than the Phantom Menace. I watch the Phantom Menace every day of the week before I'll ever watch Attack of the Clones again. That's how I feel. So about. I know how to torture you now. Yes, you do. You do. Uh, uh, I can't watch you, it again. Don't tape you to a chair and make you watch <laughs> Attack of the Clones. All four. Eject the spare pot canisters. It's like, oh, that rolls off the tongue. Good dialogue there. But I, <laughs> I'm i glad J.J. Abrams is handling episode nine. And they've also, originally it was going to be summer. Now they've pushed it months, seven months to uh, Christmas, which I think is great. I want a Star Wars film every Christmas. I think it's great. Yeah, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's... Stop scheduling it for summer and pushing them back, or go ahead and do it as long as it opens at Christmas. Or you'd have to do it every May 4th. Yes. I want Star Wars Christmases. Leave the Marvel movies and DC movies for the for summer. Some. We don't need a Star Wars movie in the summer. That could be a Christmas thing. Do you agree? Yes. Okay, Stephen. Twin Peaks. David Lynch lays out timetable for any potential season four. That gum you like won't be back in style again until at least the year 2021. If ever, says David Lynch. What? Almost two weeks after the Showtime revival wrapped its 
two-part run, Lynch has offered a brand new status report on any possible season four. No, we haven't talked, he told EW, when asked if Showtime has expressed interest in more episodes. He noted, the thing just finished, exclamation point. The acclaimed auteur went on to say, even if there was more, it would be four years from now before anyone would see it. We'll just have to wait and see. Four years, of course, is lightning fast, relatively speaking, seeing as season three took 25 plus years. <laughs> as for what any possible continuation would entail, as if anyone has any meaningful grasp on what the return truly chronicled, Lynch not surprisingly hedged, I can't talk about that. All told, Lynch seems satisfied to have served up an 18-episode part re revisiting of Dale Cooper, Deputy Andy Brennan, Audrey Horn, et al. It feels really good. It went really good in the world. I feel very thankful and happy that we did it. I thought it was like uh, Damon Lindelof said about that episode eight, especially you're there are moments in the show where you're watching pure art, right? You're watching Lynch's id up there on the screen, and you've never seen something more beautiful at times. And I agree with that. Uh, there's times where I was like, what the hell am I watching? What is going on? But there were times where it's like, this is making me feel something, whether it be totally grossed out, totally Angry. unnerved, totally uh, filled with laughter. Uh, there's, you know, we talked about that just scenes, the way they played out that one shootout in the streets in front of Dougie's house. I've never seen anything like that on a TV show before where it comes out of nowhere. You have no idea what's going to happen next. And after it's over, it's just like this adrenaline rush. You're like, what the hell was that? What did we just watch? But that was amazing. And when I go back, I've watched that scene again and it's just so funny how the scene builds, you know, it just comes out of nowhere. Who are, there's these two people, you have no idea what they're going to do, but some third party comes along just out of nowhere and totally screws up everything. And there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. And you're just like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's genius. I honestly hope there will be more Twin Peaks because I need more Twin Peaks in my life. And, you know, Heather, she was re-watching Twin Peaks on Showtime, the original series, right. for weeks. She was re-watching episodes. I was like, Heather, I can't take it anymore. Can we watch something else? Uh, and not to say that I had anything against Twin Peaks. I just didn't, I wasn't, it, it didn't revere it like she did. Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, I, I've watched it. I'm good. I don't need to rewatch it. But she really loved the characters and stuff, and I understand that. This... If you're going to rewatch it, rewatch it once, mm -hmm. you know, say, okay, let me, let me refresh my brain on mm -hmm. this. She genuinely loves the original series. Yeah. I genuinely liked the original series. I rewatched the first season, and I didn't rewatch the second when they played it. And mm -hmm. I don't know why I missed it. Mm -hmm. But I did. Yeah, I heard a lot of people complain about season two, and it does go in weird places and stuff. But and then the Fire Walk with Me movie. But Twin Peaks: The Return is something co totally different. It just—I thought it was riveting television. And I kind of, in in short, it really had nothing to do with 
Twin Peaks itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did in the in the whole scheme of it. Yeah. But it, you know, unlike the first series one and two, right? It didn't take place in Twin Peaks, hundred <laughs> percent. All right, Stephen. We were just talking about it. Mm-hmm. It director's cut could be fifteen minutes longer than the theatrical cut. Andy Muschietti just made every It mega fans day. The newest Stephen King adaptation has been in cinemas for just a week, and already super exciting news has come down the pipeline. Speaking to Yahoo, It director Andy Muschietti and producer Barbara Muschietti, who's his sister, revealed there will indeed be a director's cut of this beloved first chapter. This cut is specifically for hardcore fans, and especially involving the children that make up the Losers Club. There's a great scene. It's a bit of a payoff of the Stanley Uris plot, which is the bar mitzvah, where he delivers a speech against all expectations. It's basically blaming all the adults of Derry for the town's history of deadly accidents and child disappearances, and it has a great resolution. Maybe it will be in the director's cut. There will reportedly also be a very funny version of the quarry scene where the Losers Club dive into a lake beneath a cliff involving the children partaking in gin to work up the courage for a freefall. Muschietti reckons that there would be up to 15 minutes of additional screen time, bringing the total runtime of the director's cut to 2 hours and 30 minutes. So it's not all one scene, a 15-minute scene. It's little things in there, which is honestly not as hefty as some of the superhero fare out there. It sounds like IT team really ensured that irrelevant moments were shaved from the final cut to suit the theatrical release. Overall, it's a big relief that despite all the trimming, the chemistry between the members of the Loser Club remained intact. I do think it does, but I think it needed more. I honestly do needed more interaction. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think there was enough of it. And audiences, if you compare it to Stand By Me, where I felt like, I got enough of all those kids. They were yeah. all best friends and stuff. Right. I felt like I needed more with the Losers Club. And this director's cut sounds like there will be. Oh, God, I have to watch it again. The <laughs> clown. <laughs> clown. I don't want the clown, Steven. Scary. If they, if they do it and re-release it in the theaters with the extra. Creepy clown. Exactly. So if a director's cut signals more of that camaraderie, it will probably amplify the film's resonance. I agree. Okay. Steven, things we saw today. Okay. This is from the Mary Sue. <laughs> I just saw this. I had to click on it. Things we saw today. John Hamm is joining the Star Wars universe as the voice of Boba Fett. Okay. Let's just get into this. All right. Star Wars, from a certain point of view is a collection of 40 stories written by 40 authors from the perspectives of 40 characters from the Star Wars universe. Already, this sounds awesome to me. If that doesn't sound exciting enough, first of all, I don't understand you. But more importantly, the full cast for the audiobook has just been announced, and holy wow, is it amazing. John Hamm is getting the most attention, attention, and we are very excited to hear his Boba Fett. But check out the rest of the cast, including Neil Patrick Harris, Will Wheaton, The Toasts, Mallory Ortberg, and Star Wars alum Ashley Eckstein. I want to frame that. Everything about it is so beautiful. Blizzard 
says development in oh wait wait <laughs> i guess that's the end of the story i'm reading another one let's see i'm trying to see authors here i've maybe heard of okay paul dini of course uh matt fraction kieran dillon christy golden pablo hidalgo uh Stephen uh, <laughs> i'm not seeing his name greg rucka oh. And, you know, some of the other people they mentioned. Chuck Wendig, Gary Whitta. Uh, this sounds cool, and I would love to hear the audiobook of it, too. Sounds neat. Okay, Stephen. So that's a, that's a currently a book book? Yes, a book that's coming out, and the audiobook will have some celebrity voices. Like uh, Will Wheaton, Stephen. Will Patrick Harris. Yes. Okay, uh, here's some Justice League news. Ezra Miller apologizes to Flash fans for one thing missing from the Justice League. Let's see what it is. Um, This video better not play. Ezra Miller is stoked about playing the Flash. How could he not be? The indie fabulous perks of being a Wallflower star has already expanded his presence on the global stage with a key role in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And his super speedster Barry Allen had a brief cameo last year in Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad. I don't remember him being in Suicide Squad, do you? I don't remember. I get. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was a flashback to the boomerang getting busted by him. I remember oh. now. But that's all mere prejudice to Justice League, which prominently features the young hero alongside Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Cyborg, and perhaps some other superpowered denizens of the DC Universe. I was definitely nervous and excited every single day, Miller says, about being on the set. I definitely was feeling like Barry, stepping into the big leagues with this incredible group of collaborators. Feeling like Barry trying to do the best job I could. I think that does sum up Barry in this movie, whether you're talking about his social interactions or his attempts to harness his powers and be a superhero. It's nice when you have that art mirror life mirror art life mirror art thing going on okay every superhero needs a costume of course and the big screen flash sports a particularly elaborate riff on the character's iconic lightning red ensemble putting on the costume was initially a lengthy expedition there was a time towards the beginning where it was a very long and delicate process where everyone was afraid of everything breaking miller laughs I would feel like a Victorian lady with my chambermaids. Sometimes I would ask them if they could brush my hair and ask me about the boys whom I fancied. By the end of shooting, the costuming process was a bit less intense, but all this talk about the Flash outfit leads inevitably to an important bit of Flash lore. The fact that in his original Silver Age incarnation, Barry Allen got into his costume via a spring-loaded ring contraption. Well, you know, look, I can confirm, spoiler alert, his suit does not pop out of a ring. Who speaks with fluency about the different eras of Flash lore, he has clearly anticipated this question. Things have to progress, you know. Original Barry Allen was clearly... By the way, that doesn't happen to Barry Allen in the TV show Flash. In the first season, the the, uh, reverse Flash is suit popped out of his ring and i thought it was really cool and i thought they would have adopted it by now how many seasons of flash is it they need to do it 
By the way, I I like the TV show Flash. Mm-hmm. I I love the TV show Flash. He's my Flash, that guy. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to see a different guy playing Flash. I'm already can tell as I'm reading him this. I'm like, this guy's not the Flash as I'm reading it. So anyway, this story was a big waste of time, Stephen. Uh, we haven't done this in a while, so uh, let's do it now. No, I want a different one, Stephen. What about uh, this one? All right, Stephen, True Lies is being rebooted as a Fox pilot. All right, before you get excited, Stephen, let me finish the story, okay? Okay. (laughs) Some well-known names from screens, both big and small, are joining forces to reboot the 1994 action comedy movie True Lies. James Cameron, who directed and produced the film, is teaming up with Uber director Mick G and Arrow co-creator... Mark Guggenheim, for a one-hour pilot based on the movie. Our sister site, Deadline, reports, Guggenheim will write the script with McGee on board to direct. The original movie starred... Oh, who did it star, Steven, so I don't have to read it and insult my Uh, intelligence? Lou Ferrigno, that bodybuilder. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And who starred his wife in the movie? Uh, Shelley Duvall? Yes, you're right. And... uh, (laughs) And Tom Arnold. He was in it, too. Uh, that sounds like a nightmare of a movie, by the way. <laughs> Lou Frigner and Shelley Duvall. <laughs> what were they thinking? Uh, I can't insult Come McGee. On, Shelley Duvall, sexy dance. <laughs> I can't insult McGee because he directed the pilot to Chuck. Uh, Big G will probably direct the first episode of True Lies, and if it's picked up the series, he'll never direct another episode. But uh, it depends on who they get for this. It's not something I've ever asked for. I don't know. I would hope that they wouldn't redo the movie, just take up where the movie left. Yeah, exactly. Okay. um, This story I thought was stupid, but I wanted to read it. Stephen Logan. It's the first Oscar screener film sent to Academy voters. All right. So... uh, the Oscar season is kicking off, and Logan is the movie to start off this year's Academy Awards voting campaign. It's on Blu-ray. Can't they just go to the store? According to Deadline, 20th Century Fox is the first to start sending out for your consideration DVD screeners, with James Mangold movie being their weapon of choice. That's right. After the critical and financial success, many deem the March movie an Oscar contender due to its emotional depth, which went a bit more cerebral than your average superhero flick. Thanks to an incredible performance from Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart, it concluded the gory story of the mutant Logan as he tried to put to bed his past as X-Man's Wolverine. The film focused on him acting as a father figure while running away from a major tragedy involving the X-Men. It marked the end of an era for Jackman's Logan and Stewart's Professor Xavier, and Jackman made it clear, oh, we know all this, whatever. So anyway, stupid story. They just gave him a free movie. Yeah, here you go. Maybe you should watch it in HD. We sent you a crappy DVD copy. All right, Steven. I'd say that's it for the news. And I'm out of here. But no, we've got to do something else, Stephen. And that is, let's read Rotten Tomatoes. Some new movies have come out. Let's check them out. What do you say? Sure, let's see. 
All right, let me just... Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. Let's read Rotten Tomatoes. I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither. And let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. I like stale tomato juice. Ah, nothing worse than stale tomato juice, Stephen. Okay, a movie I'm really excited... No, no, not excited. A movie I'm really curious about is called American Assassin. And it stars Michael Keaton. Now, here's what the movie's about. American Assassin follows the rise of Mitch Rapp a CIA black ops recruit under the instruction of Cold War veteran veteran Stan Hurley, played by Michael Keaton. Mitch Rapp is Dylan O'Brien, by the way, Stephen. The pair is then enlisted by CIA Deputy Director Irene Kennedy to investigate a wave of apparently random attacks on both military and civilian targets. Together, the three discovered a pattern of in the violence, leading them to a joint mission with a lethal Turkish agent, and to stop a mysterious operative played by Taylor Kitsch, intent on starting a world war in the Middle East. It's rated R for strong violence throughout, some torture, language, and brief nudity. Okay, this movie is directed by Michael Cuesta. Okay, never heard of him. Let's see what else he's directed. He directed a movie called Lie, and a movie called Kill the Messenger with Jeremy Renner. Never seen either one. Let's see what Rotten Tomatoes is saying about the film. Currently, it's 36% rotten, 96 counted, 35 fresh, 61 <laughs> rotten. All right. James Rigetti of IndieWire says, Still passive audiences seeking pure escapism will find the bare minimum of fast action and ass-kicking mandated by the movie's formula. I give it a C+. Didn't understand a word you just said. All right. And, and Rich- that's rotten. Yes. C plus is rotten. That's right. <laughs> Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times said, sorry, but no sale. Two out of four. All right. Quick and to the point. Still not rotten. Two out of four is average. It's not, <laughs> I- Matthew Lacona of the San Diego Reader says, there's plenty of talk about American sins and American assassins, but none of it changes the fact that the bad guys want to do bad things and must be stopped. So there really isn't much point to all that chatter. I give it a zero out of five. Wow. That's rotten. That's rotten. <laughs> Soren Anderson of the Seattle Times says, Dylan O'Brien is grimly focused as rap. But there isn't a lot of electricity in his performance. He gets the job done, but he's no Matt Damon or Daniel Craig. Their spy guy's shoes remain unfulfilled. I give it a 2.5 out of 4. I deem it rotten. Is a 2.5 out of 4 rotten, no. Stephen? No. <laughs> so, so, again, when you go into... Their metric system is weird. <laughs> when you write your review, you put it in. You, there should be Anything, a there should be a button that they have to click: rotten or fresh. Two and a half out of four is past the halfway mark. That's fresh. 
at the halfway mark is kind of teetering fresh. Yeah, rotten. I would say halfway mark That's, is good. Is is a watchable movie. Yeah, they should do half rotten. Cut the tomato in half. You could still eat the other half of it. Nobody does that though, do they? They th- you throw a rotten tomato in yeah. the trash, don't you? So I mean, do you say this part looks red? It's still like, good. When you when you submit your review, and you know, I, the one that said he was what two, uh, 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 the first one. The first one was uh, a C plus. A C plus. Yeah. No, C plus is not a rotten movie see you already see a problem here okay this guy rates things in a letter grade richard roper out of four matthew lacona out of five and again this is how i i told you too is they need to come on here and just have their five star rating okay i just saw something that's really confusing okay i'm sorry to interrupt you okay soren anderson diller dylan o'brien is uh, he doesn't fool Matt Damon and Daniel Craig's 2.5 out of 4. Rotten, okay? Now listen to this. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone says, even when logic goes up in flames, Michael Cuesta's thriller speeds ahead like a heat-seeking missile. Michael Keaton and the new star Dylan O'Brien make action fireworks seem fresh again. 2.5 out of 4. Fresh. It's the same grade as this guy, Rotten. 2.5 out of 4, rotten. 2.5 out of 4, fresh. Does that make any sense? No. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. They, rotten Tomatoes needs to have a... You can submit it, but you have to check yourself, fresh or rotten. Here's another 2.5 out of 4, rotten. American Assassins... I'm going to start my own... <laughs> American version. Assassin is a disappointment because it feels like it could have been something more. 2.5 out of 4. Josh Terry, Desert News. Randall King of the Winnipeg Free Press says, Hey, A, the results is perfectly serviceable. Espionage action thriller, but not an especially inspired one. Still, 3 out of 5. Oh, he's so polite, isn't he? He's Canadian. <laughs> Norman Wilner of now Toronto says it's all very serious and very flat. Two out of five. Okay, here's here's Jeff Simon of Buffalo News, Stephen. It's a watchable thriller. Not all that great, but worth trying again at least one more time to smooth things out and see if something better could be made of it. I give it a two point five out of four, and that's fresh in my book. I'm confused. Okay. Are you confused? I, can we just blow up Rotten Tomatoes' site? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Frank Wilkins of Real Review says, A well-executed, well-choreographed action thriller, but simply doesn't do enough to make us remember any of it once we reach the parking lot. What movie did I see again? Two out of five. Why am I even reviewing this? <laughs> What movie am I reviewing? Sarah Michelle Fetters of MovieFreak.com says, The gleefully vying American assassin is a jingoistic waste of time. I give it a two out of five. Okay. So, you know, I'll give that as rotten. Two out of five. Yep. What about this? Robert Levin of AM New York. American assassin jarringly interposes scenes of hyper-realistic violence with a sort of half-hearted storytelling one expects out of a movie of the genre with minimal ambitions, juxtaposing the basis of one said such terrorist plot could then be circumvented by supposed good guys. I give it a two out of four. 
rotten. Okay, one more, Stephen. Tim Apello says, There's scarcely a beat you can't foresee, but it doesn't matter, because this pulse-pounding, terrorist-stomping narrative don't need no stinking plot. Three out of five, fresh! Yeah! Let me ask you this. Have you seen the trailer to this, right? Yes. What do you think? Eh, might check it out. It just looks like a, I mean, I'll say a popcorn movie, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's a an, an action movie just to chill and watch. I want to shift to TV for a second. Did you see The Orville? I did not yet. I, I haven't recorded. I have not watched it. The Orville is a live-action, one-hour ensemble comedic drama set 400 years in the future that follows the adventures of the Orville, a mid-level exploratory spaceship as its crew, both human and alien, face the wonders and dangers of outer space while also dealing with the familiar, often humorous, problems of everyday life, starring Seth MacFarlane and other people. Uh, Adrian Palicki, who I am in love with. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My wife is listening. I uh, She's a great actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Grimes, we all know from Critters. Mm-hmm. Great actor. And some other people. Okay, Stephen. Um, I thought this was a 30-minute sitcom. Apparently, it's an hour-long drama with comedic elements in it. It's Star Trek. Right. Seth MacFarlane is a huge Star Trek fan. He made... It's a vanity project. He made Star Trek and put himself as the star. Right. It would be like me making a Star Wars show. I'm the star of it. It looks and feels like Star Wars, but it's not Star Wars, okay? He did that with Star Trek. Uh, It's 21% rotten currently. Seven fresh, 26 rotten. I just want to read a couple of these, okay? Brandon Katz of the New York Observer says... Let's just say this is not a frontier we're interested in exploring any further. Okay. Ed Bark, also known as Uncle Barky, the Orville needs considerable work to accomplish whatever it wants to be. Assuming that McFarlane and company even have that answer. C. All right. Let's read a good review. Michael Bowman of The Ringer says, What we get, then, is a clunky but eminently watchable television show as well as evidence that, judging by the world he's created, at least part of McFarlane aspires to be better than his reputation. I don't understand. Michael R. says, The Orville relies heavily on its nostalgic tone and its casual humor, showing some promise despite a stuttering start. I give it a 3 out of 5. Another problem I have with reviewing pilots some shows get better immediately after the pilot. Some some critics never go back to a show after a crappy pilot. Right. But shows get better. I I love that show Limitless that they made for CBS that a lot of critics didn't like the pilot. I love that show, the first season of that show, and it got canceled, unfortunately. But I felt like people bailed on it too early. Uh, and I also I thought the pilot was good. So what what the hell do I know? Steven, remember when we went to see Inhumans in the theater? Mm-hmm. There's now reviews for it on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> 7% rotten. One fresh, 13 rotten. Let's read one. Okay. Liz Shannon Miller of IndieWire says, 
Inhumans is legitimately the worst Marvel adaptation of the year. Yes, even beating out Iron Fist. In fact, as far as terrible Marvel adaptations go, you might have to go all the way back to Roger Corman's unreleased 1994 Fantastic Four film to it. <laughs> Rating C. At least that has character. You know, remember the arm waving out of the limo? <laughs> Daniel Rasmus of Pop Manor says... Inhuman's progressive message about outsiders recognizing each other and uniting for the greater good gets lost amid the soap opera-esque palace intrigue. I give it a 4 out of 10. Wow, he's got a huge grade there. Scott D. Pierce of Salt Lake City Tribune says, From what TV critics have seen, Inhuman's is awful. (laughs) Eric Adams of AV Club says, there's a lot about this series that's beyond comprehension, human or inhuman. <laughs> Josh Bell of Las Vegas Weekly says, at best, Inhumans resembles a mediocre 90s syndicated genre series, and blowing it up to IMAX size just puts a bigger spotlight on its flaws. <laughs> Graham Virtue of Guardian says, wow, Graham Virtue, that's a good last name. It does all seem faintly ridiculous. The interiors of Adelon look bland, bare, and brutalistic, while the costuming and production design managed neither grandeur or grit. I thought it looked like they lived in a parking garage, didn't you? Yeah. Everything's concrete. Brian Lowry of CNN said, Previewing of the first hour found little material of a scope that demands to be seen on an IMAX screen, and humans' fidelity to the comics could also make it a tough sell beyond the loyal core. Matt Webb Mitovich says, despite a big launch, there's little to marvel at. Wink, wink, marvel. Get it, Stephen? <laughs> Don K of Den of Geek says, Inhumans already feels like a missed opportunity and an odd at- outcast in the larger Marvel canon. How'd you like to be part of something where pretty much everything Marvel has made has been pretty good? Yes. And you were like, you make something, now it's my turn. And it's... <laughs> it sucks. Not only did you fail, you failed miserably. This thing is a turkey. Oh my God, did you mess up? Just listen to what Josh Ewell says. Uh, might have already. No, wait. Did I already read this guy? Uh, Josh Ewell says Inhumans is bad from top to bottom. Try as it might, the show does not live up to the Marvel brand. It is. It is most definitely not worth seeing in IMAX, and I wouldn't recommend catching it on TV either. <laughs> Morgan Jeffrey says, for Marvel completists only, Inhumans is as many, is as many had anticipated the weakest entry in the MCU to date across screens big and small. Do not watch this. Kevin Yeoman from Screen Rant says, every brand has its limits, and this uninspired take on the Inhumans might be Marvel's. Okay, remember I said there was one good review? Yes. Joyce Slayton of Common Sense Media. Wait a second. Common Sense Media. Is that the family kind of thing where 
sci-fi battles, thoughtful metaphors in a superhero series. I give it a three out of five. What is this lady talking about? What parents need to know. Parents need to know that Marvels and Humans is a series about otherworldly superheroes with superpowers, and they have their challenges. As is common on superhero dramas, battles are frequent and can be a little bloody. Characters are killed on screen. We see blood, but no gore. Battles may be hand-to-hand combat, sometimes augmented with super strength, or others have powers... And some have guns. Some have horse feet. (laughs) Some have hooves. Language is limited to mild and infrequent oaths such as hell and alcohol to the occasional drinking of a beer or cocktail by adults. Two characters have sex, but but all we see are their entwined feet. So dirty. Moving in rhythm, and we hear gasp, moaning. Oh. Oh. Women and people of color have strong roles in this series. And while it's middling Marvel fair, teen superhero fans may want to check it out for wholesome family values. Aww. Yeah, wholesome. Your brother wants to overthrow you. Now, Steven... (laughs) Is it any good? With intriguing storylines and compelling characters, this superhero entry has promise, but is also plagued by distinct cheesiness. Viewers used to seeing superhero tales told with lusher sets and more elegant costumes and lighting and quality directing may be distressed at how flat this drama looks. Most scenes are glaringly shot on on sound stages, dubiously dressed up with stage design that looks like it's stolen from Flash Gordon in the 1930s. The wigs are truly terrible. The lighting and effects makeup strangely reminiscent, but not as effective as the Star Trek Next Generation show. Oh, and the CGI, it's bad, particularly a giant teleporting bulldog named Lockjaw. I thought that was like the best effects of the whole thing. (laughs) And yet, Inhumans isn't devoid of its charms, setting much of the action in an otherworldly city that reads like a Mount Olympus full of gods, but no one can replace Jesus. It's a good move, (laughs) as is focusing on the political implications of a world in which many people are downtrodden so that a favored few can live a life in ease, much like Trump Tower, wink, wink, oh, dropping hints about growing contamination on Earth as another relatable subplot as we humans are poisoning the Earth with our garbage. Mm. Having seen the terragenesis process in which regular humans are made inhumans by deliberately exposing them to terragen mist as much like letting your kids read Harry Potter, which is evil. Viewers can darkly imagine what powers will crop up as terragen spreads into the water supply. Gasp. Much like those poor people in Michigan. Oh. Make no mistake, 
this series isn't as trippy as Legion or as gripping as Netflix's superhero entries like Lucas Cage or Jessica Jones. I think it's just Luke Cage. But the storytelling is interesting, and viewers who love sci-fi may find themselves swept away, if not dazzled. Okay, Steven, what could you talk to your kids about in Inhumans? Families can talk about why dramas like Marvel's Inhumans about superheroes are so popular right now. What about these types of characters appealing to audiences? What can superheroes do that we can't? And can't Jesus do it all better than any of them? Oh, I guess so. I guess, you know, he can't walk on water. How do the Inhumans demonstrate teamwork and courage in resisting threats from many sides? Why are these important character strengths? TV shows and movies often try to heighten drama by giving a conflict, stakes, complications that make things more compelling or emotional to viewers, something they might relate to. How does Marvel's Inhumans raise the stakes in the battle between Inhumans and Inhumans between different factions of the Inhumans? Oh my god. <laughs> I can't read it anymore. But I love this site, Common Sense Media, Stephen. Wow. You're bookmarking that one. <laughs> and I'm spent, guys. Uh, we will return in just a second, and I've got some voicemail from Adam Sexton. I hope you guys enjoyed that. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thank you. Good night. Here all week, try the veal. And Good times. Well, guys, that's our show, Entertainment Landfill News. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, it was great to finally get together, Stephen, to talk about it. Talk about Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, can't wait to uh, talk about more stuff next time. Who knows? American Sniper. <laughs> or American Assassins. <laughs> Assassins. Yes. American Sniper was a movie. Uh, I can't wait till Inhumans premieres so we can watch the entire season. And see if it gets any better. <clears throat> uh, but Stephen, before we go, we have a voicemail from Adam Sexton. Adam, thank you so much for sending a voicemail. Let's check it out. Hello, Entertainment Landfill crew. This is Adam Sexton sending you some voicemail for tonight's episode, which I'm very much looking forward to. And I will be in the uh, chat room to listen in live, which... Uh, Whenever there's an opportunity to do that, I will always take it. Uh, very much enjoyed last the last uh, ETL Daily, full of topics about shows that I have not watched. And I don't know if I will watch uh, certain ones. I'm not the, the talk about Inhumans was entertaining, but it's not. It doesn't sound like a show that I'd be really interested in. I really feel as though I should give the Tick a chance, and. Uh, and you know, and as far as the talk about Twin Peaks at the end, um, that's a show that uh, I'm ashamed to say that I have not seen past the pilot episode. 
but uh, one thing I've discovered from listening to your reactions of the penultimate episode and from reading uh, even all these spoiler-filled reactions from certain online critics, uh, as I uh, texted to Jason uh, last week, it's pretty much impossible to be spoiled on Twin Peaks. So uh, I'm looking forward to what you guys thought about the season finale and uh, whatever thoughts you have about you know where the show's going, uh, you know if it if it if it if it has a future and what did this third season mean to you? And uh, since the third season will be released on Blu-ray uh, in December, I'll just have to uh, pick up the gold box and then pick up that and then get caught up on the thing that all the cool kids are uh, are uh, talking about. Uh, I did uh, have a birthday earlier this week and That's kept it very true. quiet. Didn't make a big deal out of it. I'm 37. You know, who gives a damn? But I do appreciate the birthday wishes you sent my way, Jaystrom and Steven. And uh, even uh, Heather uh, sent me uh, some Twitter birthday wishes. I really did appreciate all of that. Uh, it was pretty much quiet, but it was peaceful, and I'm still kind of celebrating later this uh, weekend with my brothers, so I do appreciate that. Uh, looking forward to uh, your reactions toward the the uh, It movie, the first part of it, and uh, I still haven't seen that because I'm a bit of a uh, scaredy cat, although I'll try to summon up the courage to see it this weekend, uh, alongside with... Uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It's uh, celebrating its 35th anniversary. It's on 4K, 4K Blu-ray. I already own it on DVD and Blu-ray, but I got to see that in the theater. Uh, last uh, weekend, I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, at a local theater, and uh, I really need to see E.T. on the blue on the big screen. And I'm hoping there's a crowd that I can see it with because I was too young to see the movie when it first came out. So it's pretty much been home video throughout my whole life. And I wanted to uh, leave y'all with a question. Um, since you guys are older than me, did, were you able to go see E.T. on the big screen? And did you have like that great crowd viewing experience? Because E.T., among many other things plays you like a fiddle emotionally so um we're looking forward to any comments you have regarding that subject but anyway um i need to wrap this voicemail up the live show is about to start pretty soon and uh i'm definitely looking forward to that so i'm hoping that this past week has been uh, easy and peaceful for everyone involved hope your families are doing well and i'm looking forward to the show as as always so uh uh so, Jaystrom and Steven and Bill, wherever he is, what well, we know where he is, but whatever. Uh, I will check you later. Bye. Check you later, Adam. Thanks later. for the voicemail. And uh, you know what? I do love E.T. I remember. Oh, his, his voicemail's in. Um, I remember seeing E.T. here in Texas, locally. Uh, first showing totally empty saw it with my sister vanessa and my cousin kim uh i think we were dropped off at the theater or something my or maybe my aunt florence was there i can't remember saw the movie i think it was like the first showing on a saturday or something uh you know the part where et you think he's dying or whatever we're like crying and then it's happy and we're like we're like 
let's stay and watch it again. Let's watch it again. Can we, uh, can we watch it again? Okay. So we were going to stay in the theater. All these people come in. All of a sudden the theater is packed. It's like word of mouth traveled from one showing. And, uh, the theater was just, every seat was filled. Okay. Uh, this totally a word of mouth type movie, even though Steven Spielberg directed it. Okay. Here's the thing that summer we flew to California to visit my dad for the summer. And my dad wanted to take us to see ET in, uh, Los Angeles, you know, in Hollywood or whatever lines around the friggin' block. And we go and we get in line and I'm like, dad, we've already seen this movie. Do we really have to say I've seen it twice? We're still gonna have to wait in line all day twice to, in a see, row I saw it. to see a movie where you're saying now keep in mind we do love the movie and the theater that we went to see it in, in California was much better than the crappy mall theater we saw in Texas. But we did indeed wait in line and we went and saw E.T. again in California in a huge packed crowd, and I felt kind of special, like I've already seen it or <laughs> whatever, but it was a great movie. E.T. was a phenomenon, you know? It was just like overnight, it was like the biggest effing movie ever. And it was out all summer long. You know, remember back then when a movie was big, it just never left theaters? So yeah, I think I was a little too old. I was like, that's a kiddie movie. I'm not going to watch that. <laughs> you know? So Did- I didn't see it. Yeah. To like 20 years later. Oh, oh my God. Like on VHS or something? Um, or DVD? I, I have it on Blu-ray. I don't even remember. Uh, I was watching it. Was, somebody was like, uh, it was coming on cable or something. I don't know. I want to rewatch it all And they were like, you want to watch it? I was like, I've never seen it. You know, and it's like, because like I said, I, I was at the point where I was ready to hang out with my buddies and I didn't want to go watch E.T. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a kid's movie. And, you know, when you're, I don't remember, I guess I was 14, 15, maybe 16 when it came out. Yeah. It's got a great uh, John so, Williams score. Uh, so when I, did it come out? What year? Do you uh, know? Let me 80. look it up. E.T. The Extraterrestrial. 1982. 82. So, yeah, I was, yeah, 14 years old. I was, I think I was, I think I thought I was too old to see it. Yeah. Um, it is a good movie. Here's a weird tidbit that I vaguely remember. Okay. That, I believe that was the summer my mom also passed away because we stayed in California to live. We were originally visiting my dad because my parents are divorced. We ended up staying in California. Uh, so I started school there at Adams uh, Middle School in uh, Redondo Beach, California. Where you met the Ron do? Yeah, well, I'd already known Ron from when we lived there when I was even younger, from kindergarten and first grade. And second grade is when we left and came back to Texas. So I was going back in the sixth grade, uh, which is funny because I still knew the Ron do from when we were little kids. And so I had a friend already. Uh, So I remember this vaguely that... And this, it's funny that I remember this because I was recently listening to 80s All Over podcast with Drew McWeeny and Scott Weinberg, where they were talking about this movie, horror movie, called Evil Speak, starring Clint Howard. 
Ron Howard's brother. It's a really bad movie, but this is what I remember. There was a substitute teacher. I don't remember his name at Adams that he would fill in from every once in a while. And everyone loved him. They were excited when they got, Oh, it's Mr. So-and-so because he was a background player in movies like, uh, which, what do they call What do you call it? A background actor or whatever. It doesn't extra an extra. He's a glorified extra. He would bring this photo album of him on sets of movies and I remember in, uh, it was home economics <laughs> of all things. He was, uh, substituting and he goes, if you guys want to come look at, uh, me being in movies and all the cool pictures I've taken or whatever, he was a background extra on ET. And that was really cool. You could see pictures from ET there. And it's the group part when the guys are chasing the kids on the streets and they start flying, you know? Mm-hmm. He was in that group of men right there. Uh, And he had some role in a movie called Evil Speak with Clint Howard, that movie. And he goes, "Uh, it's a scary movie. Uh, It's not for you guys. You guys are a little too young for this movie. But I'll always remember that. (laughs) That He was an E.T. and a shitty horror movie with Clint Howard. (laughs) There might have been other movies, but I don't remember that. But I remember that for some reason. Uh, So, uh, yeah, E.T. I have it on a sealed Blu-ray that I've never opened. I should probably watch it with Emma. I love E.T. Granted, the effects of E.T. haven't really... They don't look great. But he's got a lot of personality, you know. And Henry Thomas is great in that. Remember young Drew Barrymore? Yeah. How much personnel she had as a little kid, you know? Who knew she was drinking booze and getting high already? <laughs> <laughs> Good old man. Oh, Gertie. Yeah, Gertie. Good stuff. All right, Adam, thank you so much for the voicemail. It's been fun doing this podcast in different shapes and forms all this time. Certainly the best thing to come out of it is all the people we've met from doing this show. Isn't it? The Adams. The Adams, the Shans, <laughs> the Kens, the uh, uh, Rosses, the Lindas from uh, Norway. The Ricks. The Marie Goes, the Ricks, etc. Thank you guys so much for listening to our show. I know it's changed a lot, but hey, I'm sitting here chilling with my best friend Steven talking <laughs> about stuff we love. And I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. I hope you have. And if you want to hear more, go to etlandfill.com. And that reminds me, I need to renew that .com <laughs> because I got an email saying uh, October it uh, expires. And someone could take it, Stephen. Oh, no. I could steal it and charge you for it. <laughs> yeah. You want this? You got to buy it back. Damn it. I think it's like a dollar 99 for a year with Google domains. <laughs> it's like so cheap. And it said in a little thing, it said you could click renew every year. And I was like, you know what? If it was like a lot of money, I wouldn't do that. But dollar 99, I should just let it automatic renew, you know? Yeah. So, guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. Go to etlandfell.com. If you want to support the show and become a patron of the arts, go to 
patreon.com slash landfill and you can become a patron and support the show and we will keep doing more of them uh steven thank you as always for joining me and we gotta watch some more movies and watch some tv shows and stuff so we have more to talk about next american week. assassin american assassin i don't know if any new uh shows premiere yet uh we need to watch the orville so we can bag on that next week right uh next week uh anything else returning um the uh the kingsman 2 is coming out ah and i haven't seen the kingsman part one i think it's on demand on hbo or something i'll watch it but next Friday, I won't be allowed to do the show. Oh, no. Who's who's keeping you from doing the show? Depeche oh. Mode. Oh, yeah. Depeche Mode. Oh, sore, sore point with uh, me and Heather <laughs> because she wanted to go to that. And I waited too long. Who knew you had to buy tickets like a year in advance, Stephen? I'm, I'm off my game. Um, yeah. Stephen knew. <laughs> and remember that day I was looking online. I go, well, I could get these tickets for $250. Or I could get lawn seats for 50 lawn bucks. seats, which being this is basically where Starplex used to be, right? What is it, it is called Starplex. now? Schmirnoff. What is it called no, now? It's Starplex again. Oh, it's Starplex again. I've been on that lawn. I think it sucks. It's a sucky way to see a concert. That's why I was like, I'd rather spend a lot of money and sit in seats or their benches. You're not going to be sitting. Yeah, you're standing up yeah, on the standing or get down off there or whatever i haven't been to a concert like that since i was in my 20s steven uh i feel bad because heather really wanted to go to that but i talked to her i go i can get tickets now we're gonna spend uh you know about 300 bucks or whatever she's like nah just forget it because her birthday is uh two weeks from now on the 29th uh so we'll do something else but i definitely did fail her i need to make it up somehow uh, maybe you could get uh, Dave Gahan's autograph for us or something. <laughs> I think I'm sitting Martin a little Gorn. too far back. <laughs> I need your autograph. It's like he can't hear you. <laughs> You're like 400 rows back, dude. I do love Depeche Mode. They're my favorite band from high school on to 20s. Uh, Echo and the Bunnymen kind of took over from there, but I've I always loved uh, Depeche Mode. Laura, my sister, got me into Depeche Mode. Uh, what's funny? The first album I heard by by them was Music for the Masses, and then I went to see them for Senior Night at Six Flags, and I was like, "Oh, they have lots of great music. Music I've never heard of," and I heard the song Stripped. And a question of lust, and uh, then uh, Laura got Black Celebration. That album, I listened to that. I was like, "This is even better than the other album." <laughs> and they actually performed two nights in a row. And since I worked at Six Flags, I saw both. I saw Depeche Mode twice, two nights in a row. And by the way, speaking of hearing loss. <laughs> they were so loud the first night that my ear, my hearing was muffled, and I went back the next night. I don't think my hearing's ever recovered after that, but I saw Depeche Mode twice, and it was love at first sight, and I just wanted to see them over and over again. But I didn't see them again till years later, the Songs of Faith and Devotion to her, mm-hmm. but still, that was cool. Um, yeah. Did I see? I think I saw the music for the Masses tour, maybe. That was awesome. Uh, that's what, what tour it was. Um, 
Maybe I, have I seen them? Maybe I don't remember. They and I might have seen them one more time. Now that I think about it, Violator tour. I yeah. saw them on the Violator tour. You know, with Personal Jesus and all that. Uh, I seem to Songs of Faith and Devotion. Is that the with I feel you? I feel you. Okay, I Maybe. definitely did see that. Because I remember they had the drum set and everything, and Martin Gore come out with his guitar and whatever. Um, but we have their latest album, but I haven't listened to it at all. Heather has; she yeah, likes I've it. Got it too. Have you listened to it? I think it came. You get it for buying a ticket to the show. I think. Uh, are you going to listen to it a lot this <laughs> I, week so you're familiar with the music? Because I hate not knowing songs when I go to a concert. Uh, I don't mind not knowing songs. Really. That's fine. I, mean, I, don't. I don't know all their songs <laughs> anyway, so I mean they could play something I know, super old that I wouldn't. I know, know all their early shit, but after Songs of Faith and Devotion totally dropped off. I don't know any of that shit anymore. Yeah. I just it's it's something weird with me. I lose interest. Like I don't know any of Echo and the Bunnymen's later albums at all. After the Grey album, after I didn't haven't even listened to that. I didn't listen to any of like I remember Electrofiction. Well, the Grey album was before that. I don't remember that at all. I have no recollection. Lips Like Sugar album? Oh, that's what you mean by the Grey album. Of course. I think it's just called Echo and the Bunnymen. Well, it's referred to as the Grey. I thought they had an album called the Grey album. No. Yes, of course. I know. I know Echo and the Bunnymen with Lips Like Sugar on it. That album, of course. Up to that album. Evergreen. I do know Evergreen. You know, Evergreen. Okay, I do know that album, but that's it. (laughs) How many albums have they had since Evergreen? Uh, Three, maybe? Haven't heard any of them. Maybe four. Zero. They just got re signed to BMG a few weeks ago. Hmm. They actually have a label. Is there a lot of good work in those albums since Evergreen? Uh, Memorable, or is it just like, man, eh, fine? Yeah, it's probably just fine. Is there best music behind them, Stephen? <laughs> well, you know, Ian has put out, what, two solos, and... I haven't heard those either. <laughs> he, yeah, the his last solo album, yeah. it's not good. Oh, really? And it's... I think it's due to the fact that he doesn't know when to... He's self-published and self, you know, edited and all that. Self-indulgent. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, it's like you didn't know when to cut. It's like, hey, maybe that song doesn't belong there. Uh, I see. So, uh, you know, there's a couple songs on the solos that are fine, but for the most part, they... But he, he did, he re, they redid... Uh, I've got a, it's a double album called Holy Ghost, and one's... Oh, yeah, you showed me that. Uh, one of them is an all-orchestral, orchestrated of Ocean Rain mm-hmm. songs, which That's is awesome. awesome. Yeah, I think you played that for me. So that one is awesome. The the album, the solo album that he did was called Pro Patamore, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that was like all songs because his dad had just passed. Mm. So it's just like all these self-reflective songs that are kind of right overly done in my opinion. Hmm. Okay, well, enjoy the concert next Friday, Stephen. Uh, and guys, we will be back eventually. And thank you guys so much for supporting us. And 
What are you guys waiting for? Go play some Destiny 2. <laughs> and we'll see you next time, everybody. Right, Steven? Yes, we will. Uh, let me, uh, just, uh, me uh, get the album out and spin some records. All right, everybody. What are you waiting for? Go watch some movies. Uh, what's TV that? shows. The Orville. Yeah, go watch The Orville, and we'll see you next time! Alright guys, I'm out of here. I'm gonna play some more Destiny 2 and try to score some purple and grams and build up my characters. Peace out, yo. Now this is podcasting. What's an engram?